I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Tracy Z. Thank you very much. Um, wow. Well, I'm Tracy. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. And um, I would like to thank uh, John in absentia for asking me to come and lead this meeting tonight. And I would like to thank my sponsee for being here and some friends that I have known for years and years and years and my husband and those of you I don't know. I'm so glad that you're here too. Um, Wow. Uh, Just to get the facts out of the way for those of you who don't know me, I, in two weeks, I will be abstinent 21 years. And everybody in OA has a different way of working the program. I'm kind of old school. I believe in the traditions. And I believe in working the steps. And if I didn't do either of those things, I'm sure I wouldn't be standing here. Um, my top weight was about 35 pounds more than I am now. And my bottom weight was about 25 pounds less. And I went from one to the other in three months. So I can power eat like a 400-pounder. I just happened to stop because I was so vain that um, I would just binge and diet and binge and diet and compulsively exercise and use laxatives and all the things we do. And I had uh, a few other compulsive behaviors besides food, which is probably why, you know, my range was from like 90 to 160 instead of from, you know, 50 to 300. Um, and even though this is an OA meeting and I will definitely focus on Overeaters Anonymous, uh, it would be a lie to not acknowledge that I moved from country to country as a way of running away from myself. I sold everything that wasn't nailed down, only from stores, because I wasn't going to steal from people I knew, for between 8 and 27 years old. Um, I lied rather than tell the truth. I don't think I knew how to tell the truth. And in fact, that's probably another reason I'm standing here today. Because when we read uh, in How It Works, it talks about uh, the capacity to be honest. And there are those who are constitutionally incapable. When I was new, and there were some people in this room that were probably in my first few weeks of meetings, I knew that was me. And that's probably the first honest thought I'd had in 26 years, is that I knew if it was an option of tell a lie or tell the truth, even if tell the truth might have been better, I would still tell a lie for whatever reason. And at that time, I had no idea why. Um, Today, I know. And I was so scared because I was so sick of hating myself every day, all day long, and being just mad at the world and thinking that you know something was really wrong, usually with you, um, and why wouldn't it be right? And no matter how hard I tried, nothing would work right. And um, you know, I had last suppers every single night for ten years. <laughs> you would think that from one day to the next, I would realize, like, I've had last suppers for five years in a row. This probably won't be the last one either. But no, I always meant it, and I always believed that this time it would be different, and it was never different. Um, okay, so since I have a long time, I think I will just stick with the basic, you know, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, you said you would time me? a bit or just kind of wave. He would cut me off in like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes so that I don't end up doing like the, you know, 
death a log, um, I would appreciate it, and probably you would all appreciate it too. Um, I was born in a family that looked really nice on the outside. And when I was pretty new in OA, like after I had about a year, I used to call us the fine family from the podium because we were all just fine. You know what I mean? We were so fine. The mom and the dad, the college professor and his wife and the three girls that were wearing matching outfits that my mother made that actually we all liked them. And we were just fine. And the only thing is, you know, like if you pulled the curtain back, um, you would see like, you know, everybody going like this really desperately because we were so not fine. And I was really the, um, the emblem of the not fineness because I knew something was terribly wrong and I didn't have any way to talk about it um, and so I acted it out. I was born with a cleft lip and palate and um, that's really small in the scheme of things but for the first 26 years of my life that was like the reason that my life was so terrible and um, I couldn't talk about it. I had nowhere to go to talk about that. I had two surgeries when I was an infant, so it wasn't like I was in and out of the hospital all the time or having to deal with social workers or, you know, other than orthodontia, which lots of kids had. And um, I was a super overachiever, you know, like starting at three when I could read and was taking ballet already. And so nothing really looked wrong, and I didn't know how to say something was terribly wrong. And uh, I lived in this family where it was really important that everything was fine and we all had a nice smile on our face. And so we couldn't really talk about what was going on in the family that was also wrong. And um, I don't know when it first became too much, but I do remember uh, starting to steal at eight. And I didn't really get caught very much, so I was really pretty good at it. Um, and I know now, only because of OA and inventory, that I was so angry. And that was the way I could say, basically, F you to the world. I'm not following the rules. I'm not doing what anybody says. I'm going to take whatever I want because there's just not enough. And I had no idea what I was trying to say or trying to do. I just knew that I was, like, smarter than you and better than you, and I wasn't going to follow the rules, so ha-ha. And, um, and it kind of worked for a really long time. At least it kept me going. Um, as far as food goes, I was a sugar eater from the get-go when I was seven. I remember clearly, and it's like a family joke, asking my mom, could we just have an icing cake for my birthday? Because I didn't want to bother with cake. You know, like, ugh, cake. Just give me the, you know, like, sugar. And um, I was so active, you know, who knew? And um, in my family, there's some history of compulsive eating, but both of my parents looked really, you know, very healthy and normal. We all exercised and did lots of sports and stuff and, you know, gymnastics and dancing and blah, blah. And so um, it didn't really show. And then somehow, oh, I forgot to bring my pictures. Well, anyway, um, I have two pictures that I bring to OA meetings. One was at my top weight when I was living in Europe. Um, and one was when I was 12 on a trip to Mexico with my aunt. It was my first trip abroad, which started this whole series of trips abroad and living abroad and all that. Um, and I would have my little diary that I wrote at the same time this picture was taken on this cruise ship. 
And, you know, I was this stick little kid, you know, like just starting to get boobs. I'm sure I was completely proud. Um, and I wrote this little diary about how I got on this thing for eight years old. Like I passed for eight. So, again, the lies. I was so proud of that. And then I wrote a little note about how I couldn't have any more apple pie because I would weigh 80 pounds, and I underlined it like five times. And there's this picture of this little stick girl. And then there's this diary of, like, I got in for eight, and I can't weigh more. Like, nothing, it was so skewed, like nothing fit. And yet somehow, like, what I believed and what I, like, latched onto from then until I got here you know, it was like, I can't weigh more than whatever the number was. And whatever it was, it was like, you know, 10 pounds less was always better. Um, and I will honestly say that hasn't gone away. I don't behave on that idea. But, you know, it's always 10 pounds less. And when it would be 10 pounds less, it would be 10 more pounds less. And, and I just know that. And I can, like, kind of have a laugh about it today and, like, be in my body. And this is, like, a perfectly nice body. Um, and I've been the same size for, you know, within, you know, two or three pounds up and down. I don't weigh myself very much, but, you know, for, I don't know, 12 or 15 years. Um, so, anyway, that was kind of what it used to be like in college. Um, I was a theater major. I was going to be a star. Um, and everybody was talking about how on TV you looked 10 pounds heavier. And I probably weighed, like, 15 pounds less than I do now and I thought oh my god and so I went on a liquid protein diet that seemed like a perfectly fabulous idea and I lost 10 pounds and um, I had never been a major dieter like I would just cut out bread or something Um, and because I was so active it it kind of worked except for I still thought I was really fat even when I wasn't Um, and that thing in college really started the vicious cycle because I was able to be anorexic for about a year and a half, and I would basically eat lettuce Monday through Friday with vinegar on it, and if I was having a protein craving, which I didn't even recognize at the time, I would have, like, cottage cheese and peanut butter, and I would sneak it. Like, I didn't want anybody to see me eating, like, regular food. Um, And then on the weekends, it was either a free-for-all from Friday night until Sunday midnight or 11.59. Like, I had to be really, you know, so I'm never doing that again. Um, or I would just drink coffee, and you know those sugar things, you can pour the sugar and the little lid goes, and I would literally like have two or three cups of coffee while people would eat their dinner and eat the whole sugar thing. And and Cremora. I loved Cremora. So that was like, I mean, surprised I have teeth, you know, and like bones left because of behaving like that. And then I was a compulsive exerciser, so, you know, get up at 6, run 4 miles, go to UCLA, take all my classes, work in the afternoon, rehearse at night, go to bed, run 4 more miles somewhere in there because, you know, I ate gum and you had to count, like, 5 calories a stick. It was insane. Um, My head was so busy, I, I really don't know how I could think. I don't know how I got good grades. I don't know how I did it memorized long. I don't know how I did anything because really I was thinking like how much do you weigh? How much do you weigh? How much do you weigh? What did you eat yesterday? Or what am I eating tomorrow? What did I eat yesterday? How much do you weigh? Do I weigh? Is my butt bigger? Than, you know, all the time. Non-stop. Non-stop. Um, I mean, it's, I guess it's why I'm so good at multitasking because I've been doing it since whenever. <laughs> um, but it's really kind of amazing that like a person could function like that. Um, 
and I thought it was perfectly normal, you know, and nobody, and when I was really thin, people said, like, you're really thin, but I never got to, like, that, like, place where you're like, you look like Auschwitz, you better start eating. Nobody ever said that to me, and I wanted them to, and I wanted to be so weak I couldn't open the door, like, that sounded really cool, because <laughs> I knew an anorexic girl who was like that, and she had to go to the hospital. I thought, that sounds so cool. And um, anyway, what happened is, you know, the anorexia, whoops, couldn't do that anymore. And so then it was basically binge and purge, and I was a terrible vomiter. I was so upset. Like, I had a friend who could just bend and go. Not me. So it was like, you know, toothbrushes, Ipecac, you know, it just was all terrible. I ended up with, like, laxatives, which is also terrible. But, you know, I could eat the chocolate little things and... You know, a few accidents. Oh, well, whatever. It's the price for being thin. Um, and so between laxatives and basically binging and starving, you know, dieting, um, not eating until 5 p.m. and then, you know, whatever. Uh, and never doing it again the next day. But, you know, and that went on and on and on. And um, I graduated from college and I went and moved. I lived abroad because if I didn't have to speak English, I didn't have to be me. And that worked for about 10 years. Um, and interestingly enough, when I would move to a new country, which I did a couple different times, um, and, you know, have to learn a new language, because um, I never wanted to speak English, because then I'd have to be me, and that was out, um, and get a new boyfriend, that was always a good pathway to learning a new language, um, you know, the food would kind of settle down, because I had some other obsession that was, like, full force, um, Oh, and did I mention drugs and alcohol? <laughs> uh, not really that much alcohol. Calories, you know. Marijuana, the non-caloric treat. And if you got the munchies, you were stupid. You know, I didn't get them. Thank you. Um, so I think I've conveyed, you know, like I was just insane. I was just insane. Um, I thought about my food, my weight, and my body all the time. I got a couple master's degrees. I had my own company. It was in an industry that sounds glamorous. It really wasn't, but, you know, I could talk about it. Or my boyfriend in Russia, boyfriend. <laughs> um, and, you know, I could, like, say these things, and they were actually true, but it was nothing like what it was really like. Um, and I was just crazy. And what happened is my company went bust because I was basically so insane that my business partner um, abroad said you are a nut and he didn't say it that nicely either and, you know basically forget you and a year later I was in debt and it was 1985 or 6 and it was in debt like $15,000 which would be like you know $2 million now I mean, it was just like I never owed money you know I'd always been able to like just manage with whatever I had. I could do okay and, you know, travel. And that's basically all I did because I stole everything else. Um, and I had to move back to America and owe the bank this money. And I only had, I had a round-trip ticket because, you know, I was sure it was going to work out that I was going to go back, you know, very quickly. Um, but the rules were changing as far as work permits and all that kind of stuff where I was living. And so... Needless to say, I'm still here, although I have traveled back and forth a lot in the past 20 years, 21 years. Um, so I moved back to America against my complete will, but knowing not, having no idea what to do. Um, and 
for me, that was pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization because all the things that I had used to kind of tell you that I was okay, which, you know, if you thought I was okay, then maybe I thought I was okay for like two minutes until I had to go tell somebody else. Um, you can imagine how appealing I was as a friend. Uh, it didn't work. There was nothing left to say. You know, like, I'm a waitress riding a moped, living at my grandpa's house, wearing a polyester skirt that matched my hair, which was burgundy at the time. And, like, who cared how many languages I spoke or if I had, you know, four degrees or if I vacationed wherever, blah, blah, and worked, you know, and I'd be, like, serving hamburgers and telling people I really used to be a clothes designer. Like, they cared. They just wanted their hamburger, you know. But there was so nothing inside of me that all I had done all those years was, like, try to, like, like you know, pancake makeup of life. It's just, like, make this facade that you would see so that maybe I could believe it, that I was okay. But, I mean, obviously, if, you were, if you're sitting here, you know that really doesn't work. And uh, I went to an AA meeting with a friend of mine, and... I never obsessed about drugs and alcohol or any of my other compulsive behaviors the way I did about food. I mean, it was never the 24-7, you know, radio station. So I thought I didn't qualify, but I really liked it. And I think now what I know is what I liked was I heard the truth in a group setting that I had never heard in my life. And it was like my little soul was somehow awake enough to hear it. It was like, oh, and, you know, like, AA, that's kind of hip. Um, but it was clear to me, as much as I didn't want it to be clear, that, you know, where I really needed to be was here. And about a month later, you know, I prepared myself by eating 12 pieces of toast, because, of course, I was never going to do that again, and went to the log cabin, um, like, on a Tuesday, and cried my way through my first meeting. I just sobbed, and people were so nice to me. And, like, the miracle happened. Um, I was willing to do whatever I was told to do, not necessarily right away, not necessarily gracefully. Um, I got a sponsor, and I got, Carol was my first sponsor. I loved Carol. She was really smart, and she was really funny, and she talked about picking her sponsor because she had said something in a meeting about the lady's purse and shoes totally didn't go together and it was really offensive to her. And I so related, like, yes, because I'd be like, besides figuring out how much you weighed, I'd be like figuring out how you needed to like fix yourself up. And, um, and before recovery, I would even sometimes tell you. So, again, like I have learned some things. At least I don't have to say it anymore. Um, and sometimes the miracle is I don't even think it. Like, I can look at you and see your beauty and see your attributes and see the things that I find powerful and appealing. And that is a complete miracle. Because I grew up looking at what was wrong and started with me and my face and with my body and then everything else. So I got here and um, Carol had me start working the steps and... Um, my abstinence, which I have done perfectly, and I know everybody has different opinions about this, but my abstinence is no bulimia and no anorexia in any form, even the ones I didn't know about till I got here. Um, so I guess I'll have to die never having a colonic. Um, and my food plan has varied, you know. 
from um, I call in when I was new I would call in you know protein vegetable and grain knowing full well it was Mexican food with unlimited chips well that's grain um, to you know how weigh and measure to I mean I've had lots of food plans but the main thing is I haven't broken my abstinence one day at a time for you know 20 years and 11 and a half months and my food plan which for the most part is three or four meals a day not really sugar very often because it does make me crave and so I try to stay away from it most of the time Um, you know I would say like 90% of the time that's what I eat and 10% of the time it isn't and I've been the same size like I said for at least 10 probably 15 years Um, and for the most part comfortable in my skin Um, what's been the most amazing thing about being in recovery is what I've learned from this little book and um, you know there's lots of opinions about the book and the literature too but I choose to look for what works and put aside what doesn't and a lot of times what I think doesn't apply later I'm like oh my god that totally applies and you know my perspective has changed um it wasn't really hard for me to work the first few steps. And although I didn't have a very structured idea of God, I knew, in my, even in my insanity, that there was something that was, you know, kind of making the sunrise and set and that was, you know, at the, either the root or the external tips of the universe and that that wasn't me. So although I usually have God as I don't understand God, I knew there was something that it cared about me that was a little iffy because why had God cursed me with this, you know, cleft lip and palate or that it was going to intervene in my life directly. That's been a little bit more of a struggle, honestly, over all these years. But what I have gotten is the results of taking the actions one day at a time. And whenever there's a little room on the sign-in thing to put a, like a little statement, 99% of the time I write action equals willingness. Um, because what I was taught to do, and again, it's very fundamentalist, but I think it works, at least it's worked for me, is what's the smallest thing I can do that I know it's something, and what's the next thing I need to do, and do it. And if I need to make a commitment, I call somebody and say, okay, I'm doing this thing today. If it's, you know, a millimeter big, fine. I call at the end of the day and say, I did my millimeter thing, you know. Um, I worked the steps pretty diligently. My first fourth step, I think I was a year and a half abstinent. I started and stopped and started and stopped. I just couldn't get through the thing. And finally, my sponsor at the time who was in a very structured AA program as well as OA, gave me like the seven questions for dummies. And, um, you know, like if you can't quite get it together to do the columns, you can answer the seven questions. And I've probably done, I would say, 10 to 12 fourth steps, like serious fourth steps um, over the course of my, you know, 20, almost 21 years here. Um, And that's just how I work the steps. Some people say once you've done one fourth step, you can just kind of stick with 10, 11, and 12. But I personally have found a lot of value in start over at one. Because I'm not the same person when I took one 21 years ago. 
So what I'm powerless over and what makes me feel unmanageable today is very different, and I still need to work on that. Um, I'll digress very briefly just because of talking about what I really need to work on is um, I was angrier two weeks ago than I have been in 15 years because I had to do jury duty. And it wasn't even like I'm not the defendant, you know, like I could understand if he was upset. Um, I was so angry. I got a migraine for two days, and I'm not like a somatizer. Like I don't usually get, you know, ailments or physical symptoms. Um, Zits maybe, but not anything else. Uh, And I could not believe, like for, I was on jury duty for 12 days. I could not believe because of the nature of the case and my history and my profession and all of that stuff that they picked me. And probably I acted like an adolescent in the courtroom and out, not like terribly because I knew the judge would put me in jail and that judge would, um, well over two-thirds of the time. I wrote limericks. I drew pictures. I sighed. I rolled my eyes. Every day I would come home and be like, I would talk to my husband and say, don't even talk to me. I am so mad. Do not even talk to me. It's not about you. Don't talk to me. And just be like, like, so rigid and so, like, vibrating and seething with the injustice of, and I haven't started my step work on this, but it's coming. It's coming, like, sooner than later, like, within the next few weeks. Because there's some major lesson I need to learn. Like, what was that all about? I mean, yes, it's inconvenient, and yes, because I work for myself, it costs me money, and I have to pay money out, and blah, blah. But it's not like I'm not going to be able to eat or pay my rent, or, you know, I have enough money. And so I'm really not sure what that seething was all about. But to me, you know, thank you, God, and thank you, OA, and the 12 Steps, I have a way of sorting through that crap and getting rid of the stuff that really doesn't apply because clearly there were some vicious old ideas about, you know, my importance on the planet or that, you know, what I think should be how the world operates that, you know, I don't think of myself as being that way most of the time and I think mostly I don't act that way, but I sure did for those weeks. And um, it was really a big slap in the face. Now, the good news is, and this is the recovery of having a long time in recovery, is although it was like an an ugly couple weeks for certain things, um, it really wasn't personal. Nothing really bad was happening to me. And I hear the message loud. You know, I hear that little bell or see the red flag going, Tracy, there's something you need to look at here. And I get to look at it now. You know, I don't have to wait to lose my abstinence or until something really bad happens or until I drive my car into, you know, somebody else's car because I'm so mad I'm not paying attention or whatever. And it could be any of those things. I mean, I know it could be. And it, maybe it will be. And, you know, please God that I can, like, stay in rigorous honesty and I won't have to be sitting in the defendant's chair, you know, because that could be me too. Um, I mean... One of the people that I've worked with over the years said, you know, people have accused me of several things I haven't done, but if 
I was accused of all the things I did do that nobody ever said, that list would be about a thousand times longer. And the truth is, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, if the world were fair, and I'm really glad it's not, you know, I'd be in prison. Because if you added up all the stuff I did and all the things I stole, I would be in prison. And maybe I'd be out by now, 21 years later, you know. I don't know. You know, I mean, I just did whatever I wanted, however I wanted, whenever I wanted, because I thought I was entitled to it. And, um, and clearly I had a little glimpse of parts of me that are still in that from my little jury duty experience. And, and the good news is, you know, I get to... Uh, call up my sponsor and say, okay, I'm ready to, you know, <laughs> to step one about, like, I'm powerless over the criminal justice system and that, you know, they call my name just like they call anybody else. And so what if I do this or that and the case is about the same thing? They might want me on there anyway. And I just have to, like, answer truthfully and, you know, show up. Um, so, what else? Um, what it's like now, let me just talk about that for another few minutes. Um, I have a pretty active program on a daily basis. I don't talk to my sponsor every single day, but I would say probably four or five times a week we have a conversation. Um, I have sponsees that I talk to usually a few times a week in person. We kind of trade phone calls back and forth sometimes. Um, I either read literature or um, make other phone calls every day. Uh, and it might be, you know, two sentences. I mean, it's not necessarily, you know, five pages in the big book or something, although I have had, you know, much more structure in my tools. Um, I write down my food. Um, I've been under a lot of stress even before jury duty because of some professional things that are good things, but it's just stressful. And I find that when I'm in more stress, if I write down my food either before I eat it or after, it keeps it cleaner and it keeps me just kind of feeling comfortable so that I don't have to, like, you know, play those, start to play those games in my head. Um, and if I need to make a food commitment, you know, like no sugar for 30 days or whatever, I have no problems doing that. And when I'm, you know, feeling uncomfortable, then that's what I do. I go to usually two or three meetings a week. Um, I try to be of service. I have at least one service commitment uh, at one of my meetings, pretty much at all times. I mean, sometimes there's a little lag nowadays, I have to be honest. But, you know, I've been the treasurer for the past, whatever, five months at one of my meetings. And um, I pretty much use the tools and the steps every day in some way. Um, like I said, it's about time for me to start back on step one. And my jury duty gave me a great springboard uh, for looking at, you know, this particular issue. Um, my life works, you know, and it surely didn't when I got here. I mean, I thought it was just the food, and if I could handle that little thing, everything else would just clear itself right up. But for me, which is not the case for everybody here, you know, taking care of the food was the prerequisite for showing me all the other areas, in my case, pretty much every area, of my life that needed to be addressed. And, and that's not the case for everybody here, just like, you know, everybody's food plan isn't the same. Um, I've done years of psychotherapy, and I needed every minute. Um, 
I needed to share, you know, 360 minutes a week, and who would listen to that? Um, I've done lots of OA things outside of the meeting level, being of service, going to retreats, doing those kinds of things. Um, My insides and my outsides match 99% of the time. I don't have to hide or run away from who I am or what I am. Even when it's not attractive, it's okay. Um, I don't have to like it, but it's okay. And that was something I learned early on that I guess I'll um, close with is, you know, we talk a lot about acceptance in these rooms. And I was under the mistaken impression that if something was acceptable, that meant I had to like it. Not true. Acceptable means I acknowledge what is. And then I can take a step, if I choose to, to possibly make it different. But if I can't acknowledge what is, how on earth am I going to get anywhere else? So I think that ultimately the program and the tools have allowed me to acknowledge what is and take those incremental actions to becoming who I really am. And I'll close with this. One of my favorite, favorite um, AA speakers, actually, talks about when you die and you go up to heaven, supposedly, um, God says one thing only. And that question is, did you become you? And I hope you all can answer that yes. Thanks. Okay, so there's five more minutes if anybody has a question. Um, yes. The question is regarding uh, nighttime eating and eating just one more thing. And um, yes, I have experienced strength and hope with that because my food plan pr- prior to recovery was don't eat until five or six and then just eat until I passed out. Um, so one of the things that has worked for me pretty much the entire time I've been in recovery is hydrotherapy. Hydrotherapy could be a shower or a bath or a jacuzzi, whatever you have, but I would commit my food, and as soon as I was done, I would go get in the hot shower, because I like to eat, you know, until I pass out and go to sleep. I would get in the hot shower, I would t- as hot as I could stand it, and I would stay there as long as I needed to, till I felt that same kind of woo feeling. And then I would go to sleep. And although I don't, have to do it, you know, quite so compacted some of the time now. Um, that has made a huge difference. It was something my first sponsor suggested, that I write a list of all the different things that were soothing that weren't food, and that I try some of those after dinner. Um, certainly making phone calls, you know, my dinner's over, I'm committing that I'm not eating anything else other than, you know, tea or soda water or whatever, you know, between you and your sponsor between now and tomorrow morning when I eat my breakfast has been very helpful just to make that commitment. Um, I'm really big on making a commitment. But of all the things I tried, hydrotherapy has worked best for me because it's very soothing and nurturing, has nothing to do with food, and it puts me in that place of 
you know, easing to sleep. Can you talk about some of the joys out of your absence, like some of the best um, memories of absence, like in life, like the good things that it's... Wow. Um, that's a fabulous question and a really hard question about the joys in abstinence and the joys in my life. Um, there are so many joys in my life. You know, I'm, I'm so blessed. I get to enjoy things from, like, the fact that my husband and I even found each other. And that whole process um, is such a miracle. And the fact that my first marriage ended with compassion and sadness but peace is another incredible miracle. Um, every day I feel blessed because I get to get up and do a job I love. I think it's really fun. Um, and in a kind of roundabout way, I still get to carry the message, even though it's not a direct carry the message in my work. Um, I get to travel a lot. And um, my husband and I are planning a really incredible trip to India for a month in January. And I've wanted to go there since I was like 12. And I'm so excited to be able to do those kinds of things. Um, I think the other kinds of joys are much more quiet. Um, Like just meeting a sponsee and doing some step work brings me a feeling that there probably isn't anything else like that. I mean, the idea of being... I have some joy about getting to work the steps over this dumb jury duty thing because I know the gift that is on the other side, even though I don't know what it is, I know that it is. And maybe that's the biggest um, joy of abstinence is that it took me about eight years to get to this place. But I have 100% certainty that no matter what life brings me, good, bad, and different, I will thrive. And as long as I stay connected with the program and stay abstinent no matter what, I will grow even out of whatever, you know, the atom bomb hits. I mean, if I'm dead, I may be in a different form. Presumably, I'll grow spiritually then, too. If I'm not dead, I'll grow from whatever confronting whatever nightmare we might have to confront, if that's the case. And the certainty of that is so deep that it's, like, to me, that's God. And feeling that there's nothing that can take it away other than my decision to take certain self-destructive actions. So, thanks. Thank you.